The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Anshul Pfeffer reads his international politics column about Netanyahu's misstep, Laura Gascoigne reads her arts lead on Vermeer's women, and finally Simon Barnes reads his notes on orcas. Up first, Anshul Pfeffer. As 100,000 Israelis gathered outside Israel's parliament, the Knesset, on Monday to protest against Benjamin Netanyahu's government's plans to pass a series of laws dramatically weakening the power of the Supreme Court. The first speaker was Netanyahu himself. Actually, it was a recording from an interview he had given in 2012, where he said that without a strong and independent Supreme Court, there can be no protection of rights. It's what makes the differences between dictatorships and democracies. The crowd jeered. There had been fear of violence at the demonstration. Police set up barricades, but there was no real need for them. The mood was surprisingly upbeat for a demonstration which claimed the end of Israeli democracy was nigh. That's because the protesters felt they were winning. It wasn't just a success in mobilizing such a large number of people to Jerusalem on a weekday. It was also the surveys showing that the majority of Israelis opposed the government's plans. Above all, it was the belief privately shared by many in government that the legal reform plans presented on December 29 were rushed. The perceived threat to liberal democracy has caused Israel's normally non-political business community, especially the high-tech companies and investors, to come out on the side of the protesters. International investment banks and credit rating agencies have begun to pay attention, as has the US government. The plan looks like a rare, unforced error by an old grandmaster. Among those who have worked with Netanyahu over the years, they're surprised at how matters are turning out. A senior civil servant in economic affairs has said, I just can't work it out. He's the most financially literate politician I've ever advised. He would never do anything to harm Israel's prosperity. He's much too risk averse. My only explanation is that since he's someone who has always been motivated by fear, there's something now that he's afraid of more than ruining the Israeli economy. A senior Likud politician and Netanyahu confidant, who is a true believer in clipping the wings of the Supreme Court, was aghast at how the judicial revolution was being sold to the public. In presentational terms, it's a complete disaster. I believe we can explain to the public how this will be good both for Israeli democracy and the economy, but there just doesn't seem to have been any PR plan in place for such a major policy shift. This isn't like Netanyahu at all. Allies and opponents alike agree that Netanyahu's hallmarks have been meticulous planning and close attention to presentation. As far as Israeli politics are concerned, he wrote the handbook on this. It's clear that Bibi didn't see the business community joining in the protests, says a government insider. Perhaps he believed his own hype too much, that Israel's prosperity is all thanks to him and couldn't imagine them turning on him. Why has Netanyahu turned on the justice system? The obvious reason is his own indictment and charges of bribery and fraud, and the trial which has been going on for three years 
in the Jerusalem District Court with legal fees draining his resources. But it goes deeper than that. What really stung Netanyahu is that parties that in the past were prepared to sit with him in government have used the trial as an excuse to ostracize him, says a Knesset member of a coalition party. If it wasn't for that, he may even have prepared to take a break from frontline politics to fight the case in court. But the fact that parties from across the political spectrum used the trial as an excuse to get together and kick him out of office convinced him that they're all in it together. His political rivals, the courts, the media, that is basically a coup. And now that he's back in office again, he's back with a burning sense of vengeance, said the Knesset member. Since centre-left parties have vetoed serving in government with an indicted prime minister, Netanyahu has had to shift his base increasingly to the far right, since consolidating the camp of religious and ultra-nationalist parties who have an ideological hatred of Israel's liberal-leaning and activist Supreme Court. In his previous coalitions, Netanyahu had partners both to the right and the left of Likud, giving him room for manoeuvre between their often contradicting demands. His new coalition is not nearly so malleable. I still don't think Bibi wants to go all the way and totally suppress the court, says one former aide. I'm not sure he's entirely lost his respect for the court, but he's no longer in control of his own coalition. The attack on the legal establishment is maybe about 30% motivated by Netanyahu himself, but 70% controlled by his partners, said the former aide. Historically, Likud has had a liberal wing, which combines staunch nationalism with a deep respect of the national institutions and was for decades dominant in the party. It wasn't just a matter of ideology. The party's first leader, Menachem Begin, was scarred by the many years he spent in opposition, marginalised by Israel's domineering founding Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. Begin and his followers idealised the Supreme Court as the protector of the rights of those who did not belong to the old Labour establishment. When he finally came to power in 1977, Begin vowed to act differently to his rivals and refused to replace the senior civil servants, despite many of them remaining loyal to the old regime. Likud's radical wing began to slowly grow after Begin's resignation in 1983, frustrated at what they perceived as a left-wing elite that remained in power through its dominance of the legal system, civil service, media and academia, despite Likud winning election after election. For most of his career, Netanyahu trod a careful line, railing against the elites during election campaigns, but shying away from radical policies once in government. That let him project the image both of Israel's underdog champion while serving also as its responsible elder statesman. Now he has deviated from that old winning strategy and suddenly the grandmaster looks strangely amateurish. That was Anshul Pfeffer. Next, Laura Gascoigne. Has any artist ever painted fewer pictures than Johannes Vermeer? At the last authenticated count, there were 37 still in existence, and five more are known from references in early sources. With allowance for wastage and disappearance, historians estimate that he produced no more than 50, a rate of two a year over a career spanning two decades. So when 28 are assembled in one exhibition, as currently at the Rijksmuseum, it counts as a blockbuster. Astonishingly, this is the museum's first Vermeer exhibition. Holland's National Gallery has not always valued its most popular master. When it opened in 1885, the only Vermeer on show, Women in Blue Reading a Letter, was alone. A celebrity artist in his lifetime, after his early death, the painter from Delft, was forgotten by all but a few connoisseurs. 
the occasional painting that trickled onto the market tended to be attributed to better-known artists. It was the French 18th-century painter and collector Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun who first spotted that this van der Meer, about whom historians haven't spoken at all, deserves special attention, and the British art dealer John Smith, who put the puzzle of his genius in a nutshell when he observed in 1833, this painter is so little known by reason of the scarcity of his works that it is quite inexplicable how he attained the excellence many of them exhibit. How indeed! The curators of this exhibition, the biggest ever collection of Vermeer's works in one place, including the artist's studio, are still unable to offer an explanation. Where did he train before registering as a master in Delft in 1653? Did he make a study trip to Italy? Did he work alone or with assistance? No one knows. The question of whether he used a camera obscura gets considerable attention from the show's co-curator, Gregor Weber, in an interesting new book, Johannes Vermeer, Faith, Light and Reflection, exploring his possible debt to Jesuit theories on optics, but no definitive answer. All we have to go on are the paintings, and they suggest an artistic journey with a full start. Until the discovery of his signature in 1901 on the earliest work in the show, Christ in the House of Mary and Martha, few would have believed that it was by Vermeer. Its large-scale, Italianate style and religious subject seemed completely foreign to the painter of Dutch domestic interiors. A year or two before, the 20-year-old Calvinist artist had married a Catholic, Katarina Bolnes, and possibly converted. At any rate, the couple set up house in the part of town known as Papist Corner, next to a Jesuit mission and a Catholic girls' school for which the painting may have been a commission. But in the next work in the show, The Procuress, Vermeer chucked in the sacred for the profane and went Dutch. Spiritually speaking, this could have been the road to damnation, but artistically it was a step in the right direction. It rescued him from a Caravaggio's cul-de-sac and restored him to the everyday world he knew. By girl reading a letter at an open window, the familiar elements are already in place. The table covered with the rucked oriental carpet, the painting on the wall behind, the curtain drawn aside to admit the viewer, the faint reflection of the girl's head in the window glass. The only anomaly is the pile of wonky fruit spilling out of a tilted dish onto the table, a degree of disorder suppressed in later works. Vermeer's every day is not everyone's every day. It is transformed by order and transfigured by light. Vermeer is the ultimate master of light. He doesn't use chiaroscuro for dramatic effect like the Dutch Caravaggists. He uses it like a lighting technician to situate the actors within the scene and control the mood. He is, coincidentally, a consummate colourist who grasped the principle of optical mixing two centuries before the Pointillists, applying pure colour and tiny dots to strike the eye with a vibrancy not achievable by blending. He painted what the eye sees, not what the brain assumes. But he was not a camera. He chose what to put in and what to leave out. The crusty hunks of bread on the table in the milkmaid look crisp enough to eat, but he cheats with the milk in the jug. As she tilts the jug to pour the milk, it should be visible inside, but he chose to contrast the white stream of milk with the dark interior. Every element in Vermeer's compositions, from the fall of a curtain to the rucks in a rug, 
is coordinated to direct our attention to the subject. Only the girl with a pearl earring has no context. Behind her liquid gaze, it appears to have melted away. Who are these girls, all of a type like the props in his paintings? The Vermeer household was dominated by women. Wife, mother-in-law and at least seven daughters. Did he get the girls to sit for him? Or did he play variations on a single model, as John William Waterhouse did with his water nymphs? Vermeer's women are not nymphs, but neither are they paragons of morality. The suggestion in several pictures is that they're up to no good. The lace maker may fit the ideal of the Jesuit schoolgirl, but the other women, the letter writers in particular, are less exemplary. For someone who left no surviving correspondence, Vermeer painted a lot of pictures of women writing letters. All of them, we are led to suspect, billets doux. The love letter is littered with clues suggesting the writer has already done the dirty. The kicked-off mules and linen hanging out of the laundry basket tell their stories, as do the crumpled sheets of music in the shadows of the foreground cupboard pointing to the occasion of sin. Music-making in male company was a moral hazard, as the reclining violas de gamba in other paintings warn. Like other artists in the Dutch Republic, Vermeer painted for the open market, and his images of women spiced with hints of romance would have appealed to female buyers at a time when the ladies of the house chose the furnishings and paintings. His women idling in domestic settings are unburdened by household chores. They are enjoying me-time, a luxury the painter himself can only have enjoyed in his studio on the rare occasions when he got into it. After his father's death in 1652, Vermeer had taken on his picture-dealing business and pub, The Flying Fox. He let out the pub but carried on picture-dealing, probably his main source of income, throughout his life. In 22 years of marriage, Caterina bore him 15 children, of whom 11 survived. Even in a largish house, they must have lived hugger-mugger, a bankruptcy inventory drawn up in 1675 after the artist's sudden death from a frenzy, possibly triggered by money worries, records that his paint-grinding table shared the attic with 13 drying racks for the family laundry. The serenity of Vermeer's art is a beautiful mirage. Painting can be a form of wish-fulfilment, and he painted what he couldn't have, a moment's peace. That was Laura Gascoigne. Finally, Simon Barnes. Male killer whales are all mummy's boys. That's not a revelation. Their curious and intense social lives have been studied for decades. But the extent to which a male orca depends on his mother has been revealed by new research, which shows that mothers routinely sacrifice their food and their energies for their enormous male offspring, compromising their own health and their ability to produce more young. Orcas, or killer whales, the former name is used more often these days, are not whales but big dolphins, up to eight metres long. They're fierce enough under any name, but curiously selective in their ferocity. And that's all about culture. Not ours, theirs. The cultural life of orcas is a subject of scientific debate and its implications are extensive. The idea that only humans have culture, that culture defines the separation of humanity from everything else that lives, is long exploded, and orcas have helped greatly with the exploding. 
the orcas of the northwest Pacific are divided into three distinct populations, and the differences between them are not physiological, but cultural. The differences show in how and what they hunt. There are the offshores, who specialise in deep-sea fish. There are the residents, who prefer salmon. And there are the transients, who specialise in marine mammals, seals and whales, up to and including the blue whale. These different populations are called ecotypes, and they don't mix. There are perhaps five different ecotypes in the Antarctic. All orcas have the equipment to feed on each other's preferred food, but they don't even try. They stick to their own tastes and their own kind. They are very picky about it. Captive animals of one ecotype refuse unfamiliar food to the point of starvation. They are also xenophobic. They live in very tight matrilinear groups and, most unusually, all the young stay with the maternal group for the rest of their lives. Females become relatively independent of their mothers and meet their own feeding needs, but males don't. Individuals lead the group for short periods to mate outside the group. Orcas are deeply loyal to others of the same group, and they go to considerable lengths to avoid groups of a different ecotype. Each group upholds both its separateness and its identity with its own range of distinct sounds. This sense of community and shared purpose helps them to operate as brilliantly effective cooperative hunters. Orcas are gaudy animals. Sharks are just as fast and just as well armed, and they're coloured in ways that keep them relatively hidden, even in open water. But orcas, with their dramatic black and white patterns, stand out at a distance. It's been speculated that it's like football. They gain more from being able to keep tabs on their colleagues, teammates, than they would from being hidden. This is a species that makes us ask troubling questions, not about orcas, but about humanity. The self-sacrificing mother is one such question. Their cultural life is another and a bigger one. Orcas are more remarkable than people ever thought when writing them off as mere killers. But why should we be surprised? All we have to do is read Darwin. The difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not of kind. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Bye.